I listen to the diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro-adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to the Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Fitz, you were just in New York City. Yeah. Country bumpkin in New York City. It was incredible. <laughs> what do you do when you're in New York City? Um, well, this time, Beck and I were premiering a film that we've been working on for three years, which was freaking Sick. awesome. Um, so but cool. I don't know. I, I make it out there every few years, and I love seeing the art. I love the food. Um, but kind of how, like, I do everything in life. I like walking, and I like running, mm-hmm. and I like riding bikes. And usually that's kind of what I do in New York City is I just, like, mm-hmm. kind of wander around the city, and I don't know it very well. And I just go exploring and I just Mm. walk and I sort of see where I end up. And I feel like I've had a lot of cool experiences just by doing it that way. Hmm. Yeah. Like what, like what kind of experiences? Well, like there's this moment I remember in my twenties, probably 2002 and one of my best friends had, had passed away and I'd gone out for the funeral. He lived on Long Island and you know, all my friends were there. I got dropped back off in the city and I had like a whole day to kill I think I had like flip-flops and dress shoes, like not ideal <laughs> footwear for wandering around a city. And I had this like crappy roller bag and I just spent nine hours walking through the whole city and I, you know, saw a ton of stuff and it was, you know, a fun day. I think my feet ended up like almost bleeding, but that was okay. <laughs> but there was this moment where like all of a sudden I'm just sort of, I just like feel pulled towards something and, mm-hmm. and there's some, there's big construction um, you know, equipment, there's all of a sudden there's like sort of, uh, you know, like chain link fences. So that you're sort of pushed to one side and then there's plywood and, and on the plywood, there's all these notes. And I realize like in this moment that I'm, that I've just like stumbled into ground zero, you know, the, the, hmm. the yeah. site of the nine eleven attacks. And it, it was kind of like a smack in the face, right? I mean, like to walk mm-hmm. into this like other reality, right. Mm-hmm. Of just, of there, there is this, this is the site where, you know, the la- like a lot of the last 20 years of history have been, been like catalyzed because of this. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's always, it's just like, I, I, I try to make it down there every time I go there now mm-hmm. to New York City, just because I, I think like, you know, for the last 20 years, like there have been men and women who have been going off to war and returning home mm-hmm. and Sometimes for a lot of us, it kind of feels like it's happening quietly in the background. Um, You know, the the headlines sort of fade away. We stop reading them. But the thing is that there's nothing quiet about it for the the people that have served. It is, like, loud. It's powerful. It's complicated. It's difficult to navigate and even harder to, like, explain to the rest of the world. And, you know, the aftershocks and the legacy of the last 20 years, like, they actually, like, aren't going away for a while realistically like it's a big Mm -hmm. thing right 
And, you know, I, I always think about that because through the years we've talked with veterans on the show who have found meaning and friendship in the outdoors. And it's always nailed home the reality that I, that I will never understand. Like, I, I cannot walk that mile in their shoes. Mm-hmm. Like, I found meaning and friendship in the outdoors too, but there is just something about the intensity of the realization of connection amongst veterans in the outdoors, which stands out when, when I listen to their stories. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can ask, I can listen, but their shoes are their shoes, you know? Yeah. Today we have a story about a radical act of self-care and the profound experience of introducing another person to the mountains. Because sometimes you don't have to help yourself before you start helping others. I'm Fitzcall. I'm Cordelia Zars. You're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Hey everyone, just a quick note before we start. This episode contains descriptions of violence experienced during war and self-harm. If this can be difficult for you to listen to, you may want to skip this one. Please take care while you listen. Thanks. Cam Fields grew up in Northern California and enlisted as a Navy corpsman in 2009. That's a medical position in the Navy. They take care of Marines that get injured on the battlefield and Marines' families at Army bases. After several years of military and medical training, Cam deployed to Afghanistan in February 2012. Then it's on, like, it finally hits you. And I remember I'm getting off the plane and my buddy, his unit is leaving. His buddy's name was Chad. They'd gone through boot camp and medical training together. And uh, I was like, hey, Chad, it's good to see you, man. Like, you have any advice for, like, a corpsman coming in? He said, yeah, get back on the plane. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to suck. Cam spent the next month working at a clinic and a triage hospital at Camps Leatherneck and Bastion in Afghanistan. And so you're seeing double, triple quad amputees, like below the waist amputations. The work was intense and nonstop. After a month working at the clinic and hospital, Cam was assigned to a platoon to treat injuries in the battlefield. In April 2012, the fighting in Afghanistan began to escalate. Now in the field with his platoon, Cam witnessed greater violence and had to treat more and more gruesome injuries as IEDs exploded or soldiers were shot or mortared by enemy forces. One day in May, Cam got a call in the middle of the night to respond to an attack on another platoon. When Cam and all the other first responders arrived at the scene, things didn't look good. There's just a crater like the size of a basketball gym in the ground. They found an American truck to the side of the crater facing down. Cam tried to open the doors to get inside, but the truck had the battle lock on, which means it could only be opened from the inside. Cam walked around the vehicle and eventually crawled in through the hatch. He discovered that the truck had hit an IED 
that's a type of bomb, which caused an internal fire. All the soldiers in the vehicle had burned to death. After nine months in Afghanistan, Cam's deployment ended and he headed back to a small base in Northern California. And I came home and started having nightmares. The same nightmare every night. And it wasn't even about something that had actually happened, which is pretty wild. I I had this dream that we're on some mounted patrol in a truck and we're waiting for route clearance to come clear this IED in front of us. But in the dream... I need to go get more water. For some reason, we don't have enough in the truck, but we have a storage locker on the outside of the truck. So I get out of the truck and I specifically remember, I don't close the door in the truck. I've had this dream enough times running it down. I don't close the door and I open the locker and I grab like a case of water, but it falls. So I'm reaching down to pick it up. And for some reason I hear an inbound mortar. So I look up and I'm trying to yell, get out of the truck, get out of the truck. And I see the round go through the turret hatch, but I don't see it go off. So I'm like, okay, you know, must've just been a dud or something. Let's make sure everybody's all right. And I go to get into the truck from the back door and the battle locks on. I can't open the truck. I'm trying. And I see Dean and Kenny who are like my best friends in the world. I'm seeing their faces in the window and they're burning alive and they're saying like doc we trusted you like how how come you can't save us cam had this dream three or four times every night for six months it got to the point where he tried everything just to keep himself from falling asleep those huge half-gallon Red Bulls that you see at the store, and you're like, who the hell would ever drink that? Me. I was burning through coffee and nicotine and as much energy drinks as I could get because I didn't want to fall asleep and have this dream because I didn't know how to get rid of it. And just started getting like really freaked out in certain situations at work or like I would hear a noise and just instantly flashback. And I was like, man, this sucks. I didn't have anybody to talk to about didn't want to talk to my family about it because they don't didn't really know anything that happened on deployment. You don't talk to your friends about it because in the Marine Corps, they just tell you like, just sit down and shut up. Just get over it. Right. You're fine. Don't go to medical. Even though I am medical, <laughs> still didn't want to go. Then Cam had a new boss come in who turned out to be pretty tough to work with. Between dealing with that new stress at work, the flashbacks from noise and sleepless nights, Cam felt pretty beat up. Finally, I go in. It's like, I'm going to try and talk to somebody. Pretty depressed at this point. We call him the wizard, right? So a shrink, we call a wizard. So I'm talking to the wizard. His name's Frank. Frank's like, oh, you're having like the same dream. It's like, yeah. And I, you know, I'm not sleeping because I'm trying to avoid this. You know, it's kind of like when your stomach's upset, you don't eat you're afraid it's going to come right back up. That's me with sleep. Frank had Cam start a dream journal. So every night before bed, he'd write down the dream, play by play. But when it got to the scene when the mortar entered the truck, 
Frank told Cam to write a positive ending, to try to switch the story his brain played on repeat. Still haven't been diagnosed with PTSD at this point. They diagnosed me with adjustment disorder, which basically means you're having a hard time adjusting to normal life. And they're like, it's normal because you just came off deployment. And my feels a little different than that, but all right. <laughs> I started getting just like anger fits out of nowhere. Cam's nightmares continued, as did the flashbacks triggered by noise and the anger fits. Eventually, Frank did test Cam for PTSD. I started asking me all these like big questions about PTSD, which get passed around a lot, you know, and I was like, yes, 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 yes. I basically scored 100% on the test that you want to score zero on. Frank tried Cam out on a type of therapy called EMDR, eye movement and desensitization reprocessing. It involves following someone's fingers with your eyes or listening to a circular sound as you talk through trauma. What EMDR does is it bridges corpus callosum. So you have this big gap down the center of your brain. PTSD is essentially just a mouse-stored memory, stored in the short term, and we want it over here in the long term. So following those fingers with the eye movement, right, something about that transfers that memory, bridges corpus callosum. One day that winter, during a break from work, Cam decided to head out splitboarding on a nearby mountain. He'd grown up skiing in the Sierra Nevada, but he hadn't been on snow for years. Now he thought some fresh air and turns might help clear his mind. And I'm still thinking about these memories and I'm moving and all of a sudden, like, world makes sense. I'm like, damn, I don't understand. Like, how is this more helpful than the actual therapy. So I go in and I start researching everything I can about EMDR. Turns out that your eyes move when you walk. (laughs) So kind of just clicked in my head, like, oh man, I could use this as therapy. I wonder if they would prescribe me to be able to go split boarding. So I go in and I talk to the therapist. He was like, no, there's no such thing. No such thing as outdoor therapy, and it's probably not ever going to happen. So Cam gave up on the splitboarding idea and forgot about it for several years. Eventually, he retired from the Navy in 2015, got married, and moved with his wife, who was still active duty, to Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, California. Unsure of what he wanted to do next with his life, Cam started poking around online to look into going back to school or finding another job. On Facebook, of all things, this ad keeps popping up, mountain training school, mountain training school, learn to be a ski guide. It's like, man, that sounds pretty rad. They accept the GI Bill. It's like, sweet, sign me up. In March 2016, Cam shipped up to Alaska to start an AMGA certified ski course with the mountain training school. He and his fellow students set off to complete the entire Chugach Traverse from Valdez to Nalchina, where they'd learn alpine, rope, and rescue skills. I get up to Alaska, we get on glacier. Things go as well as they can on a glacier, so no food, no food caches, we're stuck in a storm. And uh, finally we get a sucker hole, 
go to call my wife. She says, if you're not home tomorrow, I'm filing for divorce. I was like, well, I can't even get food in here. I'm at a minimum, like 21 days away from being able to get off the glacier. She was like, well, peace out. So I get off glacier till I have cell service. And I give her another call. And she's like, I haven't left you yet. But all your things are destroyed. I was like, okay, great. I leave the, the, the school, right? I basically bail on the whole pipeline to come home and try and fix this marriage. I get home and all of my stuff has been burnt or broken or damaged or stuffed into this room. Things just are not going well. I'm being very verbally abused and all this PTSD stuff starts coming back up where like, I remember like laying in the fetal position on the floor, like rocking back and forth being like, I'm a monster. I'm a piece of shit. Like you're not worth the air that you're taking up right now. Soon Cam and his wife got divorced. Cam started living alone. He enrolled in a junior college in San Diego and began taking classes in philosophy. It's right around my birthday in November of 2016. And I called a buddy who got stationed uh, there in San Diego. I was like, hey, man, there's this movie out. I'd like to go see it for my birthday. And it'd be cool to catch up with you. He was like, yeah, I'll make it. You know, I'll, I'll be there. It's like, I'll, I'll come to the theater that's 10 minutes away from me so that way you don't have to drive across the city. It's like, great. So I'm sitting there. And he doesn't show. He doesn't call me. He doesn't text me. He won't answer the phone. I'm freaking out thinking he died. And I text another buddy. He's like, oh, no, he's here. He said he just didn't want to drive the 10 minutes to the theater. So I'm like, I'm not worth a 10-minute drive. I'm not worth my wife's time trying to fix PTSD. So I'm just, so tomorrow on my birthday, I'm, I'm going to go see this movie and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to kill myself. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not worth my time anymore. I had a bunch of buddies pass while I was still in. And, you know, I, I was always curious of their thought process. And I remember not feeling selfish. I remember being like, I know that today sucks and it doesn't mean that tomorrow will suck, but the last few months have sucked every day. So I'm just beat up and I don't want to, I don't want to fight this anymore. I just want to be done and be at peace. So I'm just going to go see this movie. I'm going to come home and I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to write an I'm sorry note to my mom. Cam woke up on the morning of his birthday. His phone rang. It was John, a buddy who had been stationed with Cam at their last base. Cam hadn't heard from John in two years. John says, hey man, uh, I think you're still living down here. About five minutes away, do you want to go surf and then go watch this movie? It's the same movie I'm trying to see. And I was like, sure, John, let's do that. Still no change in my plans. Now there's just one more step. Now I have to go pretend to like surfing, then go see the movie, then come home and kill myself. 
Cam headed out the door and met John at Buccaneer Beach. He had surfed before, but not since he was a kid. But he remembered the basic principle. Battle whitewater to get past the break, turn around, paddle like a maniac to try to catch a wave. John supplied Cam with a surfboard, and they waded out into the ocean. I'm getting beat up by the surf. I'm like, I'm going to give it one last shot, and then paddle all the way back in. I'm over this. I catch this wave, and I stand up, and John's hooting and hollering. I'm hooting and hollering, you know, and it's, for like my first wave, it's a good ride. And uh, I remember just like jumping off the board at the end and just like falling flat on my back and coming up to the surface. It felt like I had awoken from a dream that I'd been asleep for like 10 years. And I felt like all the negative I went in there with, like that wave took it from me, took it for me. getting back to the truck. I was like, I think I've thought about this before. In a flash, Cam remembered the EMDR therapy he'd done all those years ago with his therapist. The day he'd spent on his split board and how for a minute, he thought maybe the doctor could prescribe him with the outdoors as medicine for his PTSD. As Cam sat in his truck, getting ready to drive home, an epiphany more powerful than anything he'd ever felt before washed over him like the wave he'd just surfed. How can I do something like this for veterans to give them that same feeling that I have right now? I was like, oh yeah, you can't surf. You can't teach surfing. But what you can do is you can teach people to surf a frozen wave. So I literally, I'm sitting in the truck and I call my buddy who's still active duty even today. I said, Dickie, I'm starting a nonprofit whatever that means, and we're going to teach people to ski and snowboard. In that moment, Cam felt himself pivot. He wouldn't drive home and kill himself. Instead, he felt a surge of energy to get to the mountains, to snow, and to help other veterans do the same. It's like, this is all I care about. Like, it swallowed everything for me. After the break, Cam hits the slopes with his new nonprofit. Stay with us. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. 
Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash dirtbagdiaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. I'd heard the term 501c3. I didn't know there was like paperwork for it when I first started because yeah, I'm not not a highly educated human. I thought you just called yourself a nonprofit and you didn't charge people and you were cool. A few weeks after that day in the surf, Cam organized his first trip to teach veterans how to ski. He rallied a bunch of his vet friends and acquaintances to sign up and drove a truckload of them to Palisades Ski Resort in December 2016. When they arrived, Cam introduced his nonprofit to an employee at the ticketing office. I was like, hey man, we're a nonprofit veterans skiing. He was like, yeah, cool. You, know, you got your like paperwork? It's like, what, what do you mean? Like, I got stickers and stuff. Yeah. He was like, no, what's your EIN number? I was like, uh, you need my social? He was like, no, we need an EIN number, employer identification number. It's the number you give to the government and other donors, lets them know your, you know, it's like your tax exemption. And I was like, I forgot that at the house. I don't have that, you know, like, so I know none of this. I know absolutely nothing. This call is very kind to us. And still, I don't know how or why they hooked us up, but they did. Paperwork struggles aside, Cam and the other vets had a fantastic day on the mountain. Cam taught the other guys how to carve turns, to lean forward, to use their poles for balance. Spending time in the snow and teaching vets how to ski, it affirmed the epiphany Cam had had that day he went surfing. You know, I was once told you can't help others unless you help yourself. And I think that's the biggest lie I've ever been told. You know, some of us help ourselves by helping others. When he got back to San Diego, Cam got to work formalizing his nonprofit. He called his friend Barrett Dickinson. Cam calls him Dickie. Dickie had a business degree, so Cam asked him to help figure out what the heck a nonprofit was and how to properly file with the IRS. So once we had established our 501c3 and it came down to the mission statement, like what we actually do, I was like, skiing at a resort just isn't it for me. Uh, I want to do backcountry for our guys. And I know that that may mean less people coming through, but it's going to mean more guys above ground. So we put on there that we teach veterans to backcountry ski and how to split board. Cam decided to call his new nonprofit Front Country Problems, Backcountry Healing, which eventually would get shortened to Front Country Foundation. In December 2017, Cam packed up everything he owned and moved from San Diego to Jackson Hole. He knew he needed big mountains and deep snow if he wanted to create life-changing outdoor experiences for vets. And in Wyoming, he could find plenty of both. I was like, man, Jackson's awesome. There's got to be a bunch of vets there that like to ski. So I moved here trying to make friends. I don't make a single friend my first winter. I have a couple vets back from California that are like, hey, man, can we come out and stay with you? I'm like, yeah, I'm living in a hotel, but like, I'll pay for your way out here and I'll teach you how to do this. Right. So they come and they stay at the hotel and I teach them how to split board, how to go out and do partner rescue, how to dig pits, how to identify Abbey train, how to do all this stuff. And they were like, Hey, you still running your nonprofit? I was like, yeah, we just, I think we just figured out how we want our trips to go. 
Cam wanted to keep all his trips cost-free for veterans, so he found a job in Jackson at a gear shop to save enough money to pay for his first season of trips out of pocket. In March of that year, he returned to Alaska and finished his AMGA certification. When he got back, Cam called his friend Dickie again. Dickie, you're going to think that I'm crazy, but I want to create a death by PowerPoint for front country. I want to create class structure and handbooks and stuff. It's like, you're crazy, but I'm into it. He was like, what are you thinking? I was like, I want somebody to be able to sit down before we go out. So that way they know what to look for instead of being like, just point at random things that they have no context for. In the summer of 2018, Cam developed 14 PowerPoint presentations for his future students. The presentations included a rundown of how to identify avalanche terrain, how to partner rescue, how to use maps, and how to read a detailed weather report. Another presentation was called, What's in Your Pack?, followed by, What Should Be in Your Pack?, and then he created one about snow conditions down to the molecular science, a crash course in first aid, how to talk to search and rescue. Let's just say Cam wasn't going to leave anything to chance. Then he set up a simple screening for applicants for the upcoming season. He would pay for veterans' flights to Jackson, their gear and meals, but they had to come with some ski experience. And they needed to be able to implement the skills they learned with Cam back at home. So when I look at who's applying, I look at their geographic location. I want to make sure that when they go home, this is something that they can use every day, like I do, to keep them above ground, to keep them occupied, to have something to push for. So that's really the only other qualifying factor than being a veteran that I look for is that you can use this when you go home. Coming into the winter of 2018, Cam already had 10 to 12 applicants for his program. Word had spread among his community, and people were eager to try out his trips as a form of healing for PTSD or other adjustment issues after war. Cam accepted all of them and got to work booking flights and planning routes in the backcountry. And so when you say that you're able to fly people out now, like, have you been able to get grants and funding or donors? What does that look uh, like? Yeah, it's, it's funded uh, by the Bank of Cam. And the Bank of Cam is often funded by several jobs, seven days of work a week, a couple days off in the summer. I'd seen friends start other organizations, other nonprofits, and it was like, boom, funding, boom, funding. And I was getting people, which is great never really got any funding and uh i just sat down one day and was like what are you doing it for you know like are you doing it because you need a job or you want a paycheck at the end of the day are you doing this because you want people to feel what you felt getting getting that wave it's like yeah yeah you're right so i said i don't care if i ever make a dime Doing this, like I'm going to do this as long as I possibly can, whether that means working another job or another hour, another day to make these trips happen, I'm going to do it. Cam did run a couple of fundraisers, and he still does some today. Grants are harder because hundreds of thousands of veteran organizations all get clumped into the same funding pools, so applications can get pretty competitive. So largely, it's been up to Cam to give this whole program legs. I'll work 
up to the minute I go pick somebody up from the airport in the winter. And as soon as I drop them off, I go into work just because I don't want to tell somebody no and be the reason that they end up on somebody's hero bracelet. So when the flakes started to fall in the winter of 2018, Cam was poised to hit the slopes with his front country students for what he calls some backcountry shred therapy. He started running trips with groups of five or six, but quickly found out that that was a lot of people to teach to ski and a lot of mouths to feed. So he thinned it out to one or two people at a time. Here's how a typical trip goes. You fly into Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I pick you up. Hopefully it's snowing and it's really cold, just to scare you a little bit. And then we come back. So right now I have a two-bedroom house here in town and the second room is all front country. Cam's students normally come out for a week. He works some extra hours in the summer to be able to take those days off in the winter for his front country trips. Once they get back to the house, Cam runs his students through a gear inspection. They talk through everything they'll need on the mountain, how to use it, and check for damage. And then we jump right into classes. There's no downtime from the minute they step in. And then we'll go through three classes your first night here. After classes, Cam takes the student out to dinner in town. We're going to come back. We're going to recap those three classes we did. And then I'm going to say, we need to wake up really early tomorrow. Do not rely on when I wake up for you to wake up because I am the last person to wake and the first person out the door. Normally takes them two days to figure this out. Day one, Alpine start, out the door. Cam and his volunteer, Francis, take the student to a moderate alpine zone in the backcountry. Not a lot of skiing happens on day one. Cam wants to make sure he walks his student through every safety basic of backcountry skiing. Partner rescue, beacons, probes, and shovels. I don't care if you ski like Cody Townsend or snowboard like Travis Rice. If you don't know how to find me in a burial scenario, I don't want to ski with you. So we spend probably three to four hours your first day doing nothing but beacon training. We, we run a see one, do one, teach one, right? So, and that's with everything. So after they're done with their beacon search, and they feel good about it. Now teach me. After beacon training, they learn how to go uphill on skis. How to run kick turns. What to do with your skins if it's really cold and you take them off and they freeze. On day two, they start tackling bigger objectives. The uphills get a little longer. And on the way up, it's like airing out dirty laundry. We don't ever force anyone to talk or tell stories or bring up why they're out here. It just happens. Somebody is just like, man, I've been thinking about this. And I'm like, yeah, what's that, what's that look like? You know, like, why are you thinking about that for? And these conversations just happen. And my dog is trained for grounding. You might hear his dog now, Oso, clicking around in the background. So he's here with us too. So I normally know who is about to have a conversation or who wants to have a conversation by who he's next to in the skin track. I'm more than willing to share my story with anybody because hopefully that makes it easier for somebody else to share theirs, to start talking about it, start the healing process. 
we've had people come out and on day two, they're like, I'm going to be honest with you. I came out and I, much like you, was going to go home at the end of this and, and kill myself. Just wanted to get one last big thing in. And sometimes they volunteer with us now. After the long days of skiing, tackling bigger and bigger slopes, Cam takes his student out to dinner, and they continue the conversations they started in the snow. And even though they may have just met each other, Cam says it always feels like he and his students have known each other a lifetime. The final actual ski day, because we believe in see one, do one, teach one, that final day, these guys, they run the show the final day. They tell me where we're skiing, how we're going to get there, what gear we need to bring, what time we need to leave, how long we think it's going to be mileage and time-wise out there, what the approach looks like. And then same thing. I'm the last one awake and the first one out the door. We go out there and we ski and we come back and we have huge bonfire barbecue. At the barbecue, Cam and his students reflect on the trip laugh at funny photos and videos, and talk about what they learned during their week with Front Country. And then we drive them to the airport and we fly them out. After all his trips, Cam stays in close touch with the men and women that have come through his program and helps them find ski partners in their own communities. Over the years, he's fostered a giant web of veterans that lean on each other for support when they need it and get into the mountains to ski off a bad day. They may not know it, but, you know, in six years, I still am taking care of person number one all the way through however many we're at at this point. You know, it's, it's, it's a front country family, you know, and we just use the back country to heal. I asked Cam to look back on the last five years and to share what this whole journey has meant to him. I think my biggest takeaway is that it's okay to be sad. You almost need sadness. Without it, how do you know what the opposite feels like? I have a lot of friends that I wish I could have had this conversation with right before that final one. And uh, it's okay to have a tough life. Like, I almost want it tough. I want it to be hard. I think each of us are given tough scenarios because somebody else wasn't able to handle those, so we were blessed with those struggles. So the harder my life is, I'm into it. In a weird way, it feels like the uphill, you know? I want the uphill all the time. I want to be so good at the uphill whether that's on the skin track or that's in life, you know, just give me the struggle so that it, it makes it easier for somebody else on the way up. Give me their pack. It's okay to have a shitty day. Don't give up. There's no reason to quit. Everyone on the planet has an option to quit every single day, but we don't. Why? 
because of the possibility that tomorrow is rad, right? And if you don't make it tomorrow, how are you going to know? It could suck. It could be the worst day of your life. It must be the best day of your life. Thank you, Cam, for sharing your story. If you or someone you know needs help, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. You can support Cam's trips for veterans by donating at frontcountryfoundation.org. Again, that's frontcountryfoundation.org. Music today by Kai Engel, John Barry, Published the Quest, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Ashley Langholz, Becca Call, and me, Fitz Call. Illustration by Walker Call. Graphics by Anya Miller. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.